Welcome to Central Coast Voices, a program addressing the ramifications of change in our communities and beyond, and how today's choices will impact tomorrow's community. This program is a project of Action for Healthy Communities and provided in collaboration with KCBX and the Community Foundation of San Luis Obispo County. Fred Monroe continues to host the program from home with continuing concerns about protecting us all from the COVID virus. Today, Fred and his guests will examine the future of the Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant related to recent decisions to extend the plant's operational lifespan. Let's join Fred and his guests as we take a look at what happens next for this facility. You're invited to listen, learn, and participate in the conversation today. You can call in a question to 805-549-8855 or email your questions to voices at kcbx.org. Now, let's join Fred and his guests. Over to you, Fred. Great. Thank you, Brad. Glad to be with you again. Um, Good afternoon and welcome to Central Coast Voices. I'm your host, Fred Monroe. As you know, our goals are to bring you credible, valid information and insights from diverse members of our community. We want to address how today's choices will affect tomorrow's community. And we think this is a very, very good topic for that kind of question today. We're going to look at whether or not Diablo Canyon can remain open for longer than anticipated. Our goals as a society to move towards cleaner energies futures um, and to briskly look at things like solar and wind are not moving as briskly as we would have liked. Um, So sometimes things come up a little differently to look at. In September on, I understand the very last day of the California legislative session, um, lawmakers voted to give the state the option to keep Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant operated by PG&E open for another five years in order to help sustain electric reliability. I should clarify that's five years beyond their current licensing goal, which was 2025. Um, we'll really take a look at how this is going to affect our community, how le- the process goes on. And frankly, we want to talk with uh, Assemblymember Cunningham, who's also one of our guests today, about what the legislative process looked like to do this. Um, my guests today are California Assemblymember Jordan Cunningham and Susan Hosen, or Hosen, pardon me, Senior Managing uh, Manager of Marketing and Communications with PG&E. We'll discuss what prompted this kind of plan to be uh, looked at, to be changed, and why there's a desire to keep the plant open and running um, longer than was anticipated. I think Susan, or Suzanne, pardon me, I think we'll probably need to start with you because we, our listeners in a lot of cases may understand what's gone on, but there's a little history here. A lot of us were expecting the plant to basically be in the wind down process with a an end of operation in about at this point um two and a half years so how did we get beyond that before we talk about the legislative things that brought it about first off fred thank you so much for allowing me to be here today it's a real pleasure to 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 speak with you and and to speak with with jordan about this topic it's a very exciting time to work for pg&e And uh, the way that we got here is that Governor Newsom recently signed legislation that seeks to extend operations at Diablo Canyon Power Plant beyond its current license period that ends in 2025 in order to ensure electricity reliability and help continue to combat climate change as California continues towards its clean energy future. 
So there was an, a general perception for a long time that the plant was going to run until 2025. Um, I don't think someone woke up one day and just said, oops, we're not going to have enough energy beyond that date if Diablo closes. Was was this within the PG&E community? Was this an ongoing discussion about, gee, do we have any exit strategies that may help us keep it operational? Um, what we can do as, as an organization in PG&E's case to look at how we may better transition um, into other forms of power. We're, we're short of power if Diablo goes offline. Your listeners may remember that back in 2016, uh, there was a joint proposal agreement to retire the plant at the end of its operating licenses. Unit one, its operating license uh, ends in 2024. Unit two, its operating license ends in 2025. And back in 2016, there was a joint proposal agreement that was put together by environmental organizations, um, our unions, um, and and uh, other key stakeholders and PG&E to say, all right, looking at the future, we see that the state has a preference for renewable energy. Um, we're looking at other evolving market conditions. And it seemed, seemed like it was the prudent thing to do to move on a path toward decommissioning the plant. Um, but fast forward to, to where we are now and uh, the circumstances that we had envisioned coming to pass weren't exactly as we had all envisioned at the time. And that's where um, the legislative part starts to come in. Okay, good good intro to um, Assemblymember Cunningham. Jordan, so at, at, at some point late in the session, the governor was talking about this possibility. And I'm not sure if the governor was the 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 lead that pushed it to, into the legislature to look at further or if you um, and other legislators decided that gee we're going to have to decide on this anyway why don't we take the lead on how it gets addressed so we feel like it's more responsive possibly to the um the population of california getting what they want yeah it really it really was uh, the governor's baby so to speak. It's it's interesting because, I mean, for five and a half years, I was in the legislature sitting on the Utilities and Energy Committee and asking every expert from the CEC, the CAISO, the independent system operator, uh, other academic experts, everybody that came before us, you know, what is our plan to replace Diablo Canyon's energy with carbon-free sources? And I really got no answers in five years. I made a number of attempts to reclassify nuclear energy as renewable, uh, I didn't get a hearing on that on, on that bill for two two straight years, and so uh, the, it just sort of came together that I think the Energy Commission, which is tasked with studying the the demand and the supply of our of our electricity grid and trying to keep procurement on track so we can keep the lights on, uh, started doing projections that were showing some pretty dire shortages in 2026 if Diablo Canyon went offline. They projected a 3,500 megawatt shortage in September of 2026. And for your listeners, 3,500 uh, megawatts is basically the electricity it takes to power 2 million homes. So we're not talking rolling brownouts. We're talking severe blackouts. Uh, and, you know, I give the governor credit because he was part, it's a little known historical fact, he was on the State Lands Commission in 2016 as lieutenant governor at the time. 
And he was one of the votes that essentially told PG&E that if you don't agree to decommission the plant in 2025, uh, we will not renew your seawater intake license, uh, which was on a two-year cycle. So the governor was, uh, back in his role as lieutenant governor, was instrumental in actually forcing uh, the, the agreement to, to shutter the plant in 2025. But to his credit, he looked at the facts, he looked at the circumstances, he looked at our electricity needs that are going to grow because of electric vehicles, building more housing, more air conditioning units. It's getting hotter. Uh, we have goals to decarbonize our electricity generation. All of these things require more more juice in the grid. And there really isn't math that gets you there because while we did a great job as a state building wind and solar and other renewables, we did not build the storage that you need to be able to run those at night and supply the energy grid when the demand, by the way, is, is the highest. So the other thing worth mentioning that kind of fell from the sky is the Biden administration announced in, I believe, April of this year that there was going to be an eight or nine billion dollar fund to keep uh, existing nuclear plants that were scheduled for retirement online as part of our uh, uh, part of our policy to combat climate change. So that opened up a, a renewed discussion uh, because now there was the opportunity for the state to potentially get federal money in the form of a loan through the Department of Energy uh, to pay for some of the upgrades and maintenance things that need to happen to extend Diablo Canyon. So the governor seized on that moment and then, you know, the, the legislature sort of took it from there, but it wasn't without, uh, you know, some ups and downs, which we can get into. Good comment. There's always some ups and downs on legislative issues and, and government in general. Well, that's a that's a very a very good precise picture, to, and I appreciate you painting that. It it occurred to me that maybe this became um, a, a baby for you to nurture along because Diablo's in your district. Um, you have looked at this kind of you looked at energy issues as as a legislator statewide, not just for your own district, but. Um, was there some effort among the legislature or from the governor's office from a standpoint of, gee, we have an assembly member who whose district includes this power plant, um, who in the case of the governor and the majority of the legislature is across the aisle. Let's make sure that 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 whatever we come up with includes all of us, including Jordan Cunningham, because he needs to be able to speak to his district. I think it helped. I mean, I was willing to put my name as a principal co-author of the bill. Senator Dobb was in, in the Senate, was uh, the, the author in the Senate. Uh, I got the opportunity to present the bill at, uh, starting at uh, 1 a.m. on September 1st. It was the last item we took up for the legislative year. Uh, and I got the opportunity to work with the governor's office in their negotiations with the, with the leadership of the state assembly in particular, uh, which did not start out wanting this bill at all. And in fact, made it a what's called a wharf item and a two thirds vote for an urgency clause, which uh, gave us a fairly what seemed to be uh, the Monday going into the Wednesday night vote. Uh, our vote count was sitting in, the, in probably the low 30s, optimistically, and we needed to get to 54. So and there were a lot of concessions made in the language. I mean, that's the other thing that's important. Any piece of legislation that's big, that's got a lot of money involved, a lot of moving parts. And a lot of interest groups, uh, you, you, you've got to you've got to work really hard to get as many people to the table as you can and try to address all, all those 
different issues. And I think, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very proud of the final work product of the bill. I think it protects ratepayers. I think it, uh, it's fair to PG&E without being a windfall to PG&E shareholders necessarily. Suzanne can speak maybe more to that. Uh, I think it, you know, taps the federal money to, as a source to, to do some of the work that needs to be done. And I think it's got um, a lot of protections in it for uh, that you don't always see. You know, the, there's a history in California of sort of loading costs onto ratepayer dollars, and prices go up and up and up. And this bill, rather uniquely, uh, creates some funds where the energy that's sold at a profit from Diablo's extended operation is going to eventually be returned to the ratepayers, uh, which I think is, is is pretty cool and pretty unique. Yeah. I want to follow up on that a little bit, but I also want to remind our listeners that if they want to give us a call at 805-549-8855, uh, that'll get you into KCBX's um, central office, and they'll take your questions and uh, relay them to us to put on the air. You can also send us emails at voices at kcbx.org, um, and we can, we're monitoring those um, right now whenever anyone would send us a question. If you have elaborate or in, um, intricate questions that you may think we can't answer on the air for you today with our guests, um, I will assure you we'll send your emails along to both uh, PG&E and to Assemblymember Cunningham's office um, for, for possibly an ability for them to answer a, a more elaborate question than we can get to on the radio today. Um, Jordan, I guess the, the question, I need a little legislative education here. Um, the fact that this was the last day of the legislature, was that a strategic decision or did it just happen? Was it just indeed happenstance that, that it got, that's when it got there to be voted on? Uh, a little bit of both. For one thing, because it's an urgency clause bill, uh, under the Constitution, all bills that are non-urgency have to be voted out by midnight on the last day of session. But uh, urgency clause bills are exempt from that rule, so we could actually take it up after midnight. But the other practical reason is we didn't have the dang votes until about 10 p.m. <laughs> we, were, we were on the floor. Well, the Speaker of the Assembly wasn't going to support it. The budget chair, Phil Ting, who PG&E is not popular in San Francisco, where Phil resides and where he represents. Uh, we didn't have him on board, but we knew when we got we had a lot of Republicans. We had a lot of Democrats, but we weren't quite there. But we knew once we got Phil Ting, the budget chair, that he was going to unlock a, a bunch of a bunch of votes that would probably put us over the top. And so, you know, me and some other people were really working on Phil. And it eventually, I will say in all candor, involved a personal call from his longtime friend, Governor Gavin Newsom, asking him to support the bill. And and that's really what sealed the deal. But yeah, it, it got taken up late for a lot of reasons. It's uh, it, it was it was looking pretty dicey going into that to the midnight hour. Yeah. Am I correct that the vote indeed was 67 to three? It ended up 69 to three. 69 to three. Pardon me. OK. And, you know, which was, you know, once it's the, the way these things ebb and flow, like once you get to sort of your threshold, whether it's 41 and the, for normal bills or 54 for urgency or two thirds bills, uh, once you kind of get to that threshold, a bunch of people add on real quickly and then your, your numbers kind of go up. Okay. Suzanne, it's about time to transition into this from more of a PG&E side, because it occurred to me as I'm listening to Jordan talk about this. Um, and that, that's been a wonderful presentation about what the process was. 
somebody at the same time this was going on at the legislature had to be talking to PG&E about whether or not what they were going to indeed agree upon was feasible for PG&E to pick up and, and run with. Um, it would, would not do a whole lot of good, and everybody would look really lousy if three days later PG&E had, had to say, you know, that was a great bill you passed, but unfortunately because of X, Y, Z um, and availability for nuclear fuel product or whatever, um, there's no way we can deliver. So at some point that discussion had to take place. So I think that's where I'd like to start it, if you don't mind. Sure. And really there there are two points that I'd like to make uh, with regard to that question. First, we've earned the right to participate in the conversation by operating the power plant very well, very safely, and having a legacy of safe operations. Um, we are a very heavy, heavily regulated utility and heavily regulated plant. Um, we have a lot of oversight, and we have uh, truly a track record of excellence at the plant. And so were it not for the efforts of the men and women who work at Diablo Canyon, we wouldn't have even been afforded the opportunity to be part of the conversation. The second part is that um, we're a state-regulated utility, so we follow the energy policies of the state. And uh, up until the passage of Senate Bill 846, the policies of the state had been moving us in one direction. Uh, and, and then seeing the legislative process come to pass and, and to, to see Senate Bill 846 be, be passed, um, you know, it's it's a very good sign for us, but I also think it's important for uh, our community members to know that this is not a done deal yet. I mean, we still have we still have um, major milestones ahead of us, both at the federal and at the state level. While you were speaking, we got a question in that um, that is really posed to PG&E. Um, David Weissman posed the question. Um, for both of you is um, if PGV gets to the um, the Department of Energy grant, does the money come in as one big check or will Diablo have to be have to complete the future round of DO DOE programs in order to get the funds in increments? And the key part of the question I want, want to get out there is will the general fund get paid back the one point four billion dollars of the loan? Um, those are both reasonable questions um, coming from someone who happens, by the way, David Weissman is the with the Alliance of Nuclear Responsibility Legal Fund in San Luis Obispo. So we did submit an application to the Department of Energy for the Civil Nuclear Credit Program. And at this point, we're awaiting their formal determination that we are indeed eligible for this, the first tranche of the Civil Nuclear Credit Program. Um, and and you know, should that come to pass, that we receive that funding, um, that would be used to uh, go... A, against the $1.4 billion forgivable loan that we have procured through the Department of Water Resources. Um, that was that was an earlier part of the process. Okay, thank you. Jordan, anything to um, tag on top of that? Yeah, I would just add, I think, I think the loan programs are distributed in tranches and then the bill does have off-ramps in it uh, to Suzanne's point that this isn't a done deal. Um, if PG&E is deemed ineligible for whatever reason for the DOE grant, that's an off-ramp. Uh, if the Department of Water Resources determines PG&E 
didn't obtain necessary licenses and permits. Although we did streamline the review period to 180 days for getting those permits, which I think is an important thing. Um, that's an off-ramp. If the CPUC determines that extension is not cost-effective, the C CPUC, Public Utilities Commission in California, can, can shut it down. Or if the CEC, the Energy Commission, determines that the energy forecasts don't show reliability issues that would necessitate extending the, the power plant, that's an off-ramp. Uh, so, you know, there are some, some off-ramps, some safeguards, and, uh, and it's also in the bill that if one of those things happens, the taxpayer forgivable loan must be repaid to the general public. Okay. So I want to try and in, in, in layman's terms here, we're talking about something that the state of California agreed to let take place as long as all the other um, hoops get, get jumped through, if you will. Um, and, Neither PG&E nor the state of California needs to proceed with this program um, to extend the license. If anything comes up that makes PG&E uncomfortable with op continuing to operate the plant, or the state of California becomes uncomfortable with anything that is happening because of PG&E or because of some other um, environmental issue or something like that, that would make it not feasible to operate. I think that's a pretty fair summary. Okay. So PG&E agreed to move forward if everything's going to work. PG&E didn't say we absolutely positively have to do this, even if we look at it and say, folks, there are things here that, that aren't going to fit anymore. Suzanne, you want to take that one? Well, again, when we, uh, with the passage of the joint proposal agreement back in 2016, um, we, we intended and continue to intend to operate the plant uh, safely, reliably, um, all the way through our very last day of operation, whether that's going to be in 2025 or whether that's going to be in 2030. Um, and, and we are absolutely unbending in our approach. Uh, just like we're a baseload generator 24-7 uh, in the background, um, so too are our people. Uh, they are absolutely unrelenting in their focus to, to make sure that we operate the plant uh, with excellence. And so it's this is a, a actually a very welcome opportunity, I think, for, for so many of us um, who are, are big believers in this technology and uh, having the opportunity to at least participate in this conversation, um, I think that we have we have proven that we earn the right to operate every single day, and that's how we get to operate this week, next month, or hopefully all the way to 2030. Susanna, I want to uh, piggyback on back of that a little bit. the The decision to stop operating the plant originally in 2025. Um, was that solely driven by age of plant and and feasibility or was indeed the way that the plant's license existed going to make it extremely difficult to proceed beyond that anyway? Well, we've continued to to keep the the maintenance of the plant at the very top. Yeah. Um, we continue we have 
Prior to 2016 and after 2016, we've been continuing to make major investments into into the health of the plant uh, to ensure that it's reliable for our customers. Um, and and looking ahead, we we will continue to make those investments in the plant so that uh, it's reliable and that it's there. So that if we are looking down the road and seeing that there are potential issues related to reliability in the future of the electrical grid overall, that Diablo Canyon can be there as that extra generation source that can help the entire state, not just the customers of PG&E, but the entire state. Yeah, I'm, I may have been vague in my question. Let me, let me try and be a little more precise. The, the, the year 2025, did did the engineers look at that as unless we do some significant different kinds of life changing um, upkeep to the plant, that's kind of a magic day that should be the cutoff unless extra funds come from an outside source to be able to extend the life? No, okay. there, none of the plants, none of the components of the plant have things written on the side that say there's a. There's a five-year operating by, life yes, okay. to this to this component. I mean, think about think about your car and the kinds of investments that you're going to make in your car to keep it keep it running and safe and operational with margin for safety too, right? So it, it, there there was no there was no magic time approaching. It was we had a 20-year operating license for each one of the units. Um, and then looking at the regulatory climate in California that had that uh, significant preference for renewables, of which Diablo Canyon's output is not considered uh, eligible. Uh, you saw that preference for renewables. And then the other market conditions, just seeing uh, more and more of, of PG&E customers uh, participating in community choice aggregation programs or municipalization programs, getting their, uh, their electricity generated by sources other than those that were coming from PG&E. So it was that combination of factors that had led us into the joint proposal agreement back in 2016. Okay, thank you. That that was, that was clears up a lot for me and I appreciate it from that standpoint. Wanna remind our listeners that if you have other questions and you'd like to um, get some more information from our guests besides what we're talking about directly right now, give us a call at 805-549-8855 or email us at voices at kcbx.org. If you feel like you have a long or elaborate question that we may not be able to get to on the on the radio, we will gladly pass that on to our guests. Sometimes that is the best way to get, to share information. Um, so not, no no email will be um, end end up not answered because it was too long or too elaborate. We'll ask our guests to do that after the fact if necessary. And I appreciate the fact that both of our guests today um, are, are really sharing a lot of nuances of a very elaborate process. Um, and to say it's elaborate is an understatement, I think. We're going to take a break for a moment. Um, I'm going to turn it back over to Brad in the studio for a, a little bit, and we'll be back. Um, both Assemblymember Cunningham and um, Suzanne Hosen will be with I mean, Hosen. I apologize again. Anyway, we will be um, with us through the uh, next half an hour. If you have some questions, give you a couple of minutes to think about them and send them on over to us. 
Um, there's more to talk about, and this is Central Coast Voices. We'll be back in just a moment. And we will return to Central Coast Voices in just a couple of minutes. From the KCBX community calendar, the Land Conservancy of San Luis Obispo County is hosting a goddess walk, sunset walk, and picnic at the Pismo Preserve. It's happening on uh, this Saturday, November 19th, starting at 2. Your ticket will include a two-hour docent-led hike, a sunset picnic with ocean views, um, and other stuff, too, like mocktails and wine, and a donation to the Land Conservancy and a goddess walk activity, plus journaling, too. For tickets and more information, please visit 805ticks.com. And just a reminder that the KCBX community calendar features arts, entertainment, and nonprofit events in San Luis Obispo, Santa Barbara, and southern Monterey counties. You can submit your item or event to be shared. You'll find it on our calendar page right there on the website, kcbx.org. I'm Maria Hinojosa. Next time on Latino USA, the last cup looking at themes of identity, capitalism, immigration, and race through the world of soccer. I've come back to Argentina to tell you about the dream. Most of these kids out here dream of becoming soccer gods. And a lot of their parents dream about it, too. That's next time on Latino USA. On the next Fresh Air, the growing tension between China and the U.S. over Taiwan, one subject of President Biden's meeting this week with Xi Jinping. New Yorker staff writer Dexter Filkins will explain the history of the conflict between China and Taiwan, China's increasingly threatening military exercises, and how an armed conflict might play out. Join us. There's all the COVID testing to get into China and quarantines as well. And then there are the special hoops that reporters have to jump through. There's a U.S.-China trade war, so we can only get three-month visas for journalists. I'm Kai Rizdal, the extra special song and dance that is entering China. That's next time on Marketplace. That's all ahead today on our Thursday here on KCBX. Latino USA is coming up at 2 o'clock, followed by Fresh Air from 3 to 4, and then Marketplace from 4 to 4.30. Right now, let's return to Fred Monroe and his guests on Central Coast Voices. Over to you, Fred. Thank you, Brad. We're talking about Diablo Canyon and extending its license by five years from both a legislative standpoint with uh, Assemblymember Jordan Cunningham and uh, from PG&E's standpoint from Suzanne, Suzanne Hassan. And we are having a wonderful discussion. You can be part of it by either email or phone if you'd like to. Um, 805-549-8855. We're unable to take actual audio calls on the program when we're doing it by Zoom. But um, our crew at the station will take your question and pass them on to us. Um, we'll also accept questions and comments by email at voices at kcbx.org. And I'll remind you that if there's a rather elaborate or intricate question that you want to share with us that we can't get to or can't answer completely on the radio today, I'll make sure that both of my guests get a copy of your question um, and we'll be able to respond from that standpoint also Jordan, I want to go back to the um, the legislative perspective on this. Um, I am surprised that that any that in the environmental community that that PG&E and Diablo have had to face for the last forty years um, during the construction of the plant and other various things that have gone on that 
that you were able to actually get 69 members of the assembly to vote on this. Um, I don't recall, um, and I'm sorry it's not in my notes, what was the Senate's response to it? Because I realized that um, the Senator Dodd from Napa, a Democrat, and was the co-author on the Senate side along with you. Um, so I commend you both for um, for doing this as a as a bipartisan effort, because we know that this has not been a great bipartisan era for an awful lot of things. Um, but what, what what was it that moved the the vote so strategically in that favor for an issue that for a lot of people um, was still environmentally challenging? Yeah, so the Senate vote to answer your question was 31 to 1 with eight abstentions. Um, and uh, one Republican voted for it, and uh, the, the remainder abstained, and I believe there was one Republican that voted no. So it wasn't, it wasn't quite as bipartisan on the Senate side as it was on the Assembly. Uh, I'll leave it for the historians to say whether I had anything to do with that or not. But the the... The, the, the real crux of it was, look, extending Diablo by five years to 2030 is good for the environment. It's good for climate change. The reality is Diablo Canyon by itself is the single largest carbon-free electricity generating, generating asset in the entire state of California by a lot. It's 9% on average of the state's entire energy production. It's 20% of our carbon-free energy production. And, and it's base load. And what that means is it's 24-7. So it, it produces electricity at night. And that is very important because solar does not at all. And wind goes down at night because it cools off. So what you've got is base load power. And what a lot of people don't understand about uh, our California's energy grid. We import at times the first two hours after the sun goes down. We import an average of 36% of our electricity from out of state. Most of that is natural gas produced. So extending Diablo Canyon at night in particular actually displaces natural gas. That, that, that's, and that's good for the air. That's good for climate. That's good for the environment. And that's an important selling point on the environmental thing. And I think what you're seeing, too, is there's a lot of historical uh, sort of environmental opposition to nuclear power. Um, but what I've noticed over especially the last couple of years is a lot of folks that are principally concerned with climate change have started to take another look at nuclear power because, and you're seeing that across, not just the United States, but also in Europe, Germany's delaying possibly closing their last nuclear plants. Uh, France has bent their carbon emissions curves down by building more nuclear power plants. And what we have in California that's very important is getting us to that 2030 date is 2030 is key because that's, probably the soonest that offshore wind power can come online and actually be producing. And you, we could replace Diablo with three gigawatts of offshore wind power off the coast of Morro Bay and a 600 megawatt or so battery storage plant. That would about roughly equal the two gigawatts Diablo produces. But we aren't there yet, and it's going to take a lot of time. And it's 2030s, probably best case scenario if everything goes perfectly. So you're getting it's good for the environment to have Diablo producing in the 2026 to 2030 years, because frankly, we need that time. And with Diablo putting carbon-free energy into the grid, the overall carbon emissions are way lower than they otherwise would be. So that, that fills a cavern that would be difficult to work with if we weren't doing this. 
By di- um, if by difficult you mean we don't have another plan, yes, yeah. <laughs> very difficult. Well, we all we also if we if we were looking at somehow needing to increase carbon-based fuel or, or um, electricity production, um, the fact that we, as a society in the early '80s, when there was a a lot of challenges being presented to nuclear power and Diablo specifically, we weren't talking about global warming. So the um, the cavern between what we have to fix and what the risks are, um, it was truly as I would say, um, from my layman standpoint, it was truly as wide as it is now, but we didn't know how to acknowledge it was that wide or really know it was there. Um, I think if you were to say global warming to an awful lot of people, including um, a lot of educated environmentalists um, in, in 1979 or 80, that we've got a real serious risk of global warming, um, it wasn't in people's vocabulary. It's possible well, I, it wasn't I, just in mine, but I think it was a, a general question. No, I think that's right. I think the science and uh, our level of sophistication as a society uh, on studying climate change has, has improved. I think the sl- science behind that has has solidified. Uh, and I think that uh, people are starting to assess that risk properly. And I think that's caused a lot of people to sort of revisit some base assumptions about, okay, what is the, the, the reality is to decarbonize, you need a bunch more electricity production. I mean, 37% of carbon emissions in California are transportation. Their vehicles, shipping, consumer, personal vehicles, so forth. That's the by by far the largest percentage. So if you want to really decarbonize, lower your carbon emissions, you're going to have to electrify your vehicle fleet over time. You're going to have to do hydrogen-powered cars for shipping. Uh, you're going to have to do a lot of those things, all of which require a much greater electricity generation base. So uh, you know, I think the I think the environmental vectors are pointing a lot. Of, uh, in, in in many ways in the same direction yeah we did have a uh, a caller call in the question was um with the additional fuel rods that would be involved in a five-year extension um, does that intensify the problem of how these spent fuel sources um get stored beyond 2030 um we've it's the concern about storage obviously of spent spent fuel has been an ongoing question, but this would add five five years to that, to the amount of spent fuel there is. Right, and so out at the plant, we have two methods to store our spent nuclear fuel. We have wet storage and dry storage. So the wet storage, we've got spent fuel pools that are in our fuel handling building. And then we also have an area with a very complicated acronym. It's called the Independent Spent Fuel Storage Installation, and it is um, on a hillside behind behind the power plant itself. And in uh, in the spent fuel storage installation that's on the hill, the dry storage, we have enough room to store 40 years of spent nuclear fuel. But then looking at the combination of both the wet and the dry storage, we have the ability to accommodate the additional spent fuel that would be generated by an additional five years of operation. But both methods are safe and secure and and continually inspected by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Um, and it's, you know, 
It's something that we take very seriously. And it's something that we are continuing to do. And we are continuing to um, to guard, protect, maintain this spent fuel until such time as the federal government accepts the responsibility um, to uh, accept their spent fuel back from PG&E uh, in, a, in a federal repository. Thank you. Um, David Weissman sent another email because I may have uh, misquoted his, one of his questions. Um, when will the $1.4 billion loan from the general fund be paid back to California taxpayers? Is there a fixed time and date? I'm not aware of the, of the time frame for implementation. I'm afraid that would be something that I, I wouldn't be able to, to comment on. Okay. All right. Um, there's, there's some more elaborate parts of his information. I'll pass on to both of you um, after the program. But, you know, I, I know that, that Mr. Wiseman is, is a, a, a frequent participant at, at our meetings and, and has a, a very open relationship with many of our, um, our subject matter experts who would probably be in a better, better position to answer those detailed technical questions about, about the repayment. But, you know, ultimately, we are, um, this proposal and, and the possibility of continued operations, it actually um, works out in our customers' benefit. Um, when you look at our um, at the funding mechanism, there wasn't particularly a funding mechanism set up for our operations past 2025, and that was one of the key parts of the legislation was giving us some sort of mechanism um, because it's outside of the the way that we have routinely operated the plant and and gone through our general rate case. So um, this, in looking at whether or not, um, what kind of impact this is gonna have for our customers. We estimate that the cost to our customers from continuing to operate the plant would range from a charge of less than a dollar a month to actually a bill credit of more than $5 a month. And it really depends on the market prices. Thank you. And David, I will send the rest of your question on to my guests so we can get a little maybe a further answer from that standpoint. Yeah, sorry about that, David. Oh, um, Jordan, you were talking about the concept of uh, potential st of the expansion of storage, and you, I think you may have referenced it as batteries. In my mind, it was just uh, any storage method. Because what comes to mind, and this may be a question for Suzanne, is the the Helms power plant the, in the in the Sierra foothills that where they store power. For listeners who may not realize this, and this is a very layman's view of this. When, when Diablo is creating more power than we're using at a given times of day, there is a, um, a hydroelectric plant that pushes water um, to an upper storage area, and then that stored water can gravitationally be used as a generation source. Um, I actually, it's going back probably 30 years at least, got an opportunity to look at that facility and was flabbergasted at how efficient that is for storing energy um, as a as a reservoir system, is there a lifespan issue with the Helms plant? Because what occurred to me, among other things, is if we're looking at the ability to put other types of energy sources online post twenty thirty, 
if that plant has a lifespan, the, the Helm storage facility has a lifespan that exceeds that 30 years, then that's a tool that's available, hopefully at this point, into perpetuity. Yeah, I'd have to look up what the lifespan of the Helms plant is. It's it's a it's a wonderful asset, and you know, uh, a company called Vistra runs the battery lithium battery storage facility in Moss Landing up in Monterey County. They can store 400 megawatts of energy for on a four-hour cycle, and they're planning on expanding that to 750 megawatts. Uh, Vistra is also has bought the Morro Bay, the old Duke Energy plant, the three stacks near the Rock over in Morro Bay, and they're looking at developing a 600 megawatt lithium battery storage uh, facility. Gravitational storage is happening in Montana. Pump storage is happening all over the place. Pretty simple physics. Um, you know, lithium's got large scale lithium storage has its own issues, but you know, it's sort of the best way to store energy and batteries that we have at present. Um, but the pump storage facilities, you know, you, you basically need a hill and a giant trench and a bunch of water and a big cement block that's on, you know, this is pretty simple physics as you, as you alluded to, uh, the reality is in my view, if you want a fully renewable energy grid, which I think is our ultimate goal in California, I mean, well, it is, I mean, we put it into law, uh, you need all sorts of storage because you've got to take the excess. We are solar power exporters during the daylight hours and we are natural gas power importers at night and to solve that equation you've got to have these facilities that can store massive amounts of electricity whether it's gravitational pump or battery or what have you and then run that run the current the other way at night because what's happened over time is the peak energy load for the grid is the first two hours after the sun goes down people get home they turn their acs on to cool their house they flip on all their televisions. They've got kids on 17 different tablets or whatever. Or maybe that's just my house. I don't know. But, you know, that's that's what that's what we've seen shift. And so that's a bit of a problem when you're matching up supply and demand. And those uh, those storage facilities allow you to solve that problem. And so we're going to need a lot more of it. I mean, we we've, we're pretty much on track as a state uh, on solar, wind, offshore wind, biomass, I mean, I think our renewable energy goals in terms of producing that electricity, we're in pretty good shape. We're on track to, to get there, but we aren't on track on the storage piece. And without that piece, uh, I just I don't see that, you know, we're going to be importing expensive natural gas. And the other thing that's important for people, I think, to realize is the cost of buying those additional marginal megawatt hours to keep your lights on uh, when you know, you're buying them from Arizona, or from Nevada or whatever. Um, two things. One is those are very, very expensive megawatts when you get down to the last available ones. And Cal ISO has to buy them. They're under a legal mandate to buy them. Those costs get passed on to ratepayers. So keeping Diablo open another five years protects the ratepayers from those, those spikes. And the other thing is, you know, I, I met with the commissioner of FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, and I asked him, what keeps you up at night? And he said, Oh, that's easy. A Western United States heat wave. Because what happens is if it's hot everywhere, then Oregon doesn't have excess hydro. Washington doesn't have excess hydro. All of the Western states on the Western grid are using all of the energy they can produce. And California doesn't have anybody to buy it from. So that's what, those are some of the things that I think motivated 
the change in policy to, to revisit the Diablo issue because, uh, you know, it's a very bad thing when you've got 2 million homes that don't have power. Yeah. Very good point, Jordan. Thank you. Um, Suzanne, one of the things that comes to mind that we, had, we don't think we've addressed, and if we did, I'm sorry if I'm repeating myself, um, the the use of nuclear power on a worldwide basis now is not that common. There are not, I don't believe there are new plants being built in the United States. Germany only has, I believe, one plant or two plants still up and running. Is this five-year extension that you, frankly, a year ago weren't prepared for or weren't really looking at, I think, going to affect where you indeed even get fuel sources to to refuel the plant um, for an extra five years? Well, there's a global market for nuclear fuel and for the related services. And the, the fuel assemblies are uh, manufactured specifically for the facilities where they, they wind up being used. So, um, and so it's producing, not off the shelf, if you will. That's right. You okay. just can't, you can't go and, and get this at, at your average market. Um, so producing the fuel for a particular reactor does have some lead time. And the state did recognize that time constraint. And that's where we saw Assembly Bill 180 back in June um, that allowed PG&E to just begin the process to procure procure additional fuel to ensure that it's available to support continued operations. So that's, that's, there's a timeline to address that in an effective manner and we'll be okay. That process is underway. Okay. Um, We've got some other questions coming in. I'll tell you, um, I'm looking at one right now that I believe is too elaborate for us to probably get to on the program. So, um, Peter, your your questions I'll pass on to our to our um, our guests after the program because um, they may be just too too complicated for us to um, to address at this point. Um, this has been been very good discussion, and I appreciate what we've been able to look at here, um, Jordan. From a standpoint of legislative process, um, is there anything that the average layperson should be aware of? Um, that this kind of discuss that they need to encourage more of this kind of discussion at a legislative level, which translates into we need to talk to our legislators um, to make sure that more of these kind of discussions take place. So you're not having the discussion at the last day of the legislative session. I, I realize you get to walk away from this with a smile on your face on December 1st. Um, and you should be very proud of this process, and I'm sure you are. Um, but I believe we still, as a society, um, don't understand how to talk to each other. No, I think that's right. And it is in the nature of human endeavors that a lot of things end up getting done last minute. And so, you know, I think it works the same in the legislature. And sometimes that pressure's good because, you know, forces people to, to, make a decision. But I think in terms of energy production, I mean, you know, the CEC does a lot of really good long range planning. Um, the Cal ISO does, I think, a pretty good job of keeping the lights on and ma managing the grid. Um, the PUC is very slow. They always sort of have been, but they're very deliberative, which can be beneficial because they take a lot of things into account. But the biggest challenge for us going forward I, as a state is 
uh, in my view anyway, it's not really on the procurement production side. I think PG&E's done a great job. In fact, we put in the bill that they, uh, if anybody's going to continue to operate this plant, it has to be PG&E. They can't sell it. They can't. I don't, I don't think they want to, but uh, because of their track record and they've got the employees that, uh, you know, do an absolutely phenomenal job at that facility. So I think that's they're an important partner in this. But uh, we we do need to build a, a heck of a lot more storage. And it's possible certain people have talked about a Marshall plan for clean energy. Uh, I'm all for that. I think we probably need that. Uh, but it's going to take some uh, political will to streamline some of this labyrinth of permitting and approval and CEQA litigation and all these different things that can uh, stand in the way of us getting to where we need to be with energy production, in particular, siting and building massive, large-scale storage uh, uh, for for electricity because if we if we don't build the storage then we're going to be in this position in 2031 too we're we're going we're going to look back and we're well, great we've got all the solar power we could ever want while the sun's shining but then you know at eight o'clock at night we're importing 56 percent of our electricity from out of state from from carbon emitting sources um, so I, I would encourage your listeners to you know hold their public officials accountable. You know, reach out and and ask them simple questions like, what what are you doing, or what is the state doing to plan for building out uh, large scale electricity storage capacity? Yeah. That'd be that'd be where I'd start. Yeah, Jordan, I think you did a good job of transitioning into the um the the last word few moments here. I think you did you pretty much wrapped it up from that standpoint. Is there anything else you want to add before um, we wrap up the program? Well, I'm 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 very optimistic that PG&E is going to be able to, to to land this plane, so to speak. I think the bill gives them the funding they need. It protects the ratepayers. I think it's good for the environment. Uh, I think it's a, a good piece of legislation. Uh, I'm grateful to to the governor for pushing it and supporting it. Uh, and, and it takes a certain amount of political courage, by the way, to change your mind on a big issue. You know, a big part of his voting base does not like this. Um, the, the no votes in the assembly, by the way, were the three of the most environmental legislators, you know, they, so and that's to his credit. And I think, you know, PG&E has been a great partner in operating the plan. I think they'll continue to be. Uh, they have wonderful professionals working there. I think they're going to be successful getting the, the full federal repayment of this loan. And I think uh, we're, we're going to see Diablo extended to 2030. And that gives us the time to actually intelligently transition to get our energy grid to where we need it to be. Thank you. Suzanne, your last words. Well, just let me repeat that we at PG&E are committed to the highest levels of safety and performance and security at Diablo Canyon. The plant has an excellent safe operating record. We're subject to very rigorous regulatory oversight, including with respect to seismic safety. And we're so proud of the role that Diablo Canyon plays in providing safe, reliable, low-cost, carbon-free energy to our customers and to all Californians. We're very supportive of California's bold decarbonization goals. We have been and we continue to be. And we see that we have an opportunity 
at Diablo to help deliver on those goals while continuing to run one of the top performing plants in the country. Um, like I said before, we earn the right to operate every day and, and we look forward to, to continuing the conversation and hope that we have the opportunity to continue to operate uh, past 2025. Thank you very much. This has been a very good discussion. I appreciate the fact that you've both been able to be here today for a full hour with us. Um, it's really been a discussion that I think is very important. Hopefully people listen to it. Um, we also know, and you folks can both pass along to um, to your constituents and people who may have questions, that this program will be available um, on the KCBX website for people to listen to and, and rethink. And we'll pass some of our questions from some of our listeners along to both of you um, after the program. We thank those folks for, for really giving us some elaborate questions. Maybe in some cases we couldn't cover them all right away. Um, this has been Central Coast Voices, and I'm glad that we've been able to be with you. There'll be no program for Central Coast Voices next Thursday. It's Thanksgiving, but the program will be back on December 1st, and I'll be back a couple of weeks after that. Um, Central Coast Voices, as we've said before, but we want to mention, is a production of Action for Healthy Communities, which is a project of the Community Foundation of San Luis Obispo County in collaboration with KCBX. Um, we want to basically also thank uh, Joan Gellert Sargent, who's underwritten this program on a reasonably regular basis for a long time. Your input can also be sent to us at voices at kcbx.org, which is the same email address we gave you earlier if you're calling in or sending in notes for, for questions. I will pass all of the emails that came in today along to our guests so they can respond um, hopefully, if you need some more information, this has been a collaboration with KCBX, and we appreciate having Brad Kyle in the studio at the station to let us continue doing this. Thank you to my guests today, Assemblymember Jordan Cunningham and Suzanne Hazen, who has done a wonderful job in both cases of getting us very good information about what hopefully will be a good way to use energy in a way we didn't know we were going to get it for five more years. This has been Central Coast Voices. Thank you all very much. Have a good day.